Good afternoon, and welcome to Power for the People here on Solar Powered Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 in, in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and everywhere in our solar system at WERU.org, and also on the WERU app. I'm your host, Steve Kahl. The goal, as listeners know, of Power for the People is to help everyone understand what is turning out to be an increasingly complex energy future, including energy policies, technology solutions uh, in our state and also in your life with the goal to help everyone to reduce your energy costs. And uh, it is becoming more important and more uh, obvious uh, for the need to reduce your impact on the environment and on climate. Today's guest is perfectly suited to address both the environmental and economic aspects of of energy, uh, but we'll get to uh, her in just a moment. So first, some energy news. Uh, I got a mailer in the mail yes, just yesterday from Efficiency Maine uh, saying that you can get a hybrid heat pump water heater for $549 at either Lowe's or Home Depot. I've seen similar prices uh, from other vendors. Uh, and uh, this uh, Efficiency Maine says the prices were close to double uh, a year ago, and that may well be true. Um, the flyer says that you can save $500 a year in electricity if you uh, go to a hybrid hot water heater. Uh, I certainly can can uh, echo that. I figure my cost is on the order of $10 a month uh, for my hybrid hot water heater. You do need to get them professionally installed to get the rebate from Efficiency Main, and the, the rebate changes all the time, so I'm not going to quote that, but go to efficiencymain.com, the state agency that does the, these sorts of rebates, uh, to find out more. I do highly recommend a heat pump hybrid hot water heater. Uh, By now, you're aware that electrical rates are going up uh, yet again uh, here in Maine because our our electric rates are based on the price of natural gas in New England, uh, correctly or not, I guess. The PUC has stated that the low cost of solar and wind has helped drive the electricity cost down a little bit, but there just isn't enough solar and wind yet to make a difference. Um, And unfortunately, natural gas sets the price because of the way ISO New England handles uh, uh, pricing that they're the regional grid transmission operator. And so even though our grid is 80% renewable, uh, we still get uh, the price set by natural gas. Uh, If you are interested in how ISO New England works, uh, you can find that in a previous program here on Power for the People at at archives.waru.org. Uh, something that we'll be, we be, we've covered briefly already on this program uh, previously, and we'll be covering again uh, later on this year. The Biden administration has many rebates and tax credits that came in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, and so if you are interested in taking a look at any of that, uh, you can go to rewiringamerica.org, which is a brand new website I just found last night, for more information and for calculators on what you can save. And that, to me, that does mean that it makes sense to uh, delay some of your uh, purchases until January 1st so that it does uh, fit into the in, in um, the Inflation Reduction Act. And then I saw in the paper this week that the average Maine household will spend $5,700 on heat and electricity this year. Frankly, I think that's too low uh, based on the price of oil. But uh, just to remind everybody, Uh, My house is 100% electric and 100% solar powered, and I will spend about $1,200 compared to $5,700 or more, Uh, again, because uh, electricity works. So go electric. That's that's the theme of the Inflation Reduction Act and Efficiency Maine, 
uh, and me, I can uh, say that that certainly works. One last thing that I'll mention uh, in the Bangor Daily News, uh, just the, over the weekend, there was, an out of, there was an article about community solar. And um, I've referred to it here as a gold rush uh, to install community solar in the state. Um, I do support community solar for apartment dwellers and for people whose roofs are too shaded to go solar. Uh, but community solar was originally intended to go on closed landfills and and other land with no obvious uh, other use. Um, and uh, now we are putting it on prime agricultural land and also uh, cutting forests to install community solar. And the cutting forest was really the point of the of that article. And, and to me, we should be doing it in places like the uh, Augusta Interchange at exits uh, 109 and 115, where there's nothing else that we can do with, uh, with an interchange. And so I think everybody should applaud that. Uh, and I do think that community solar uh, does need some, some regulation or additional rules. Uh, and I do hope that the legislature or the, PS, uh, the PUC will consider that at some point in the future. And I'll use that segue to introduce today's guest, who just won re-election to the Maine legislature as a member of the House of Representatives. Lawyer o Lori Osher is an environmental scientist with decades of experience in soil science and climate change. She currently works as the Community Resilience Specialist with Eastern Maine Development Corporation, and we are going to start by focusing on that here in a moment. She's the owner of Osher Environmental Systems, which helps owners lower their energy use, eating costs, and be more comfortable, by the way and also lower their carbon footprint. And she was a uh, member of the faculty at the University of Maine back in the day. Uh, Dr. Osher has a PhD in soil science from Berkeley. And uh, indeed, she and I were colleagues at the University of Maine when she was a faculty member there. And I was director of the George Mitchell Center for Environmental Research. Uh, and I might add that we were both doing climate-related research uh, before it became so visible and necessary uh, relative to reality. And so uh, so here we are. Good good to see you, Laurie. Good to see you. And uh, welcome to the program. So uh, I think we have uh, this, uh, when I ran into you just a, a few weeks ago uh, and discovered that you were, you were the Community Resilience Specialist with Eastern Maine Development Corporation, I have to say, I was unaware of that program and that role and those positions. And so I think this is a really important opportunity for you relatively new to that position, I think. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, to uh, to fill people in. I mean, so uh, in with Lori and uh, with Osher Environmental uh, Systems, you've been helping homeowners, which sets you up nicely for this position, uh, which is out helping municipalities, as I understand. But beyond that, I have to say, I don't really know about the program. So tell us more, tell us how communities get involved and let's just uh, have some conversation about this. Certainly, well, thank you so much for inviting me. And it was a pleasure to see you at uh, the Natural Resources Council of Maine Citizen Awards, Citizen Advocate Awards, that's when we ran into each other. And uh, so it's great that the state is funding, um, the, funding this community resilience program. And what the Community Resilience Program partnership is, is uh, it's funding from the state. And I'm a state legislator, so I, I voted for it. It's $4.75 million to that will be used by municipalities to help them be more resilient to climate change. And we're looking at, we're helping municipalities all around the state, especially my outreach is to the municipalities that do not have the staff to be able to understand 
uh, not, not that doesn't have the time to, to investigate this, these funds and how to get them. And so I work with communities. I'm, um, I'm, working for Eastern Maine Development Corporation, we're the region four coordinator. So they've broken the state into four regions and Eastern Maine Development Corporation is region four, which is Aroostook, Penobscot and Piscataquis counties. And what we do at Eastern Maine is assist the municipalities and communities in those three counties to learn about this program, learn what kind of funding is available, help them assess what their needs are, and then help them apply for the funds. So they're called community action grants. They're they're uh, available for twice a year. The uh, last community grant uh, action grant cycle closed in in uh, September, and the next one will be in March. And so communities can apply for up to fifty thousand dollars as an individual community to help them with the many ways there's 72 different things on the list from the community resilience partnership. And so let's, I can put them into group things. So uh, for example, everyone who's been working on their home to make it more energy efficient has heard Steve talk about, he just talked about heat pump hot water heaters, but I'm sure you've all heard about heat pumps. So air to hair heat pumps in Maine is ahead of of every state in the nation in the number of heat pumps we've installed for the number of people we have in our state. We've been a big push by Efficiency Maine that give rebates. However, there's still plenty of people who have not taken advantage of those rebates. And it's the same, they also give rebates to municipalities to put heat pumps in their municipal buildings. And not all the municipalities have taken them up on them, even though the rebates are generous. So for example, for a municipality, a municipality could get $1,600 rebate uh, from Efficiency Maine for putting in a heat pump. But if the heat pump they put in costs $4,000, there's still $2,400 that that municipality needs to come up with to put in a heat pump. And most municipalities in our state, especially in the rural areas, especially when there's low population, uh, just don't have the money. They'd have to raise their taxes and taxes are already high. And so this enables those towns to look around work with me or work with uh, the other service providers uh, in the state that are associated with this project and uh, evaluate what what they'd like to do. For example, if they'd like to have put heat pumps in their municipal buildings, then they write a grant that says, we want to put in three heat pumps. Efficiency Maine already has a municipal program that says they'll cover $1,600 per heat pump for those three heat pumps. We'd like to apply for the balance the rest of that money. And the beauty of the Community Resilience Partnership is there are no match grants. So many of you who know about granting, usually you have to come up with a matching amount of money, but these are no match grants because it's understood that the way to make ourselves more resilient is often to invest in, in the kind of technology that's, that's more resilient, or in the case of heat pumps, they cost a lot less money and they use electricity instead of using fossil fuels. The only fossil fuels used is whatever's being burned at the power plant. But if the more we go solar, the more we, get, we go have wind, they um, will be using less fossil fuels. But if you, in your home, you're not burning anything, that's a good, that's a good start. So, uh, so there's an example. We can, so their funding could be for weatherizing the government buildings. So just as I did in my business, OSHA environment systems, I assisted 
my clients, which were primarily homeowners, but also municipalities, also churches and synagogues and nonprofits, especially nonprofits. I'm very fond of buildings built in the 1800s. And so I especially worked with nonprofits that had historic buildings in downtowns. Um, And you'll see all over Maine, there's beautiful buildings downtown and often they're in rough shape because expensive to renovate them. Uh, And nonprofits uh, occupy them, but then their heating bills are exceedingly high. So I worked with nonprofits to weatherize those buildings that they owned or, or occupied. And so some of the money for this community resilience partnership that a, that a municipality can get would be to rev, rev, weatherize the building. Uh, so another, other time, other money they could get would be to get to have a consultant come in and ana- analyze all of the buildings to identify what's the, the best way to proceed. So in my business, that's what I do. People would call me. Sometimes they'd call me and say, I need new windows. I'm sure I need new windows. And my response on the phone would be, if you're only if you only want to buy new windows, then you should then talk to someone who installs windows. My specialty is to come to your home and talk with you about your entire home and review the whole home and figure out what the first best investment is for you. And there's very few places where the best investment is new windows. Right. And so, thank you for uh, saying that. That's an, that's an important consideration. So you're, and so, you're, you're so I would say to people if. So, so I would say to people, if you are sure you want windows, there's people who put them in. And and uh, but my 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 goal was always to help people assess what the most important next step is. And so some of this funding could be that you hired a consultant that would help the municipality figure out what the next step is. Uh, and and the, that the fifty thousand dollars would be used to pay for that consultant. Uh the town of Dover Foxcraft got one of these community action grants. They were in the first round of funding, and it was a community group. It was individuals in the community that were a committee of, um, that re- that reported to the uh, select board uh, or council. Each town has a different name that they call it, but they, they had a, an environment committee. And that committee wrote this proposal to get a uh, funding, the community action grant, specifically to to look at warming and cooling shelters and how does the community respond when there's extreme temperature events. So when it's extremely hot and people do not have electricity in their home or the electricity goes out, then you cannot cool yourself. And so that causes all sorts of health problems especially for the elderly and people who have disabilities. And so the most vulnerable people in the community end up in the emergency room when you have an extreme heat event. And if the community, in this case, Dover Fox Ross, knows who those people are, they know to check in on them, They also then, then they can transport them to a warming cooling shelter. In this case, they'd need to be cooled. And so th- the grant that Dover Foxtrot got was to find to, to hire a consultant to come up with the emergency response plan and to to evaluate all the buildings to figure out which is the best place to put the warming and cooling shelter. So the same goes in the winter. If it's incredibly cold and someone doesn't have heat, then they're in danger of de- of death or at least and going to the emergency room with a serious um, response, you know, serious hypothermia that they wouldn't have had that happen if they were in a place where they could keep warm. So that's just in the, you know, examples of, of some of the work, the things that we can fund uh, through the community resilience partnership. 
So it's called a partnership. How many grants have been given out so far? Um, Well, I don't remember exactly, but I can tell you that 127 communities have joined the partnership. Hmm. And 52 more are in the process of joining the partnership. That's statewide. That's statewide. statewide. Okay. And that's about that represents about a quarter of the communities in the state are taking advantage of this. And uh, so to to so that's why it's called a partnership because even though there are no match grants, there is an investment by the community. The community has to become partners with this the governor's office of policy innovation in the future, which is where the funding. And the uh, administration of this grant, this money comes from. What and how do you mean, become a, what does being a partner mean? Being a partner means that the community has to fill out a self self assessment, and there's a form that GOPIF has. The, the governor's office of policy innovation of the future has a a, a a form, an app. You know this this self assessment form. That means the people who are either the elected, if there's no town, some towns have no employees at all. Some towns have a few hours worth of employees. Some towns have in several employees, but not employees that spend much time thinking about this. But someone in the town, whether elected or staff, has to fill out the community um, self-assessment, and that asks lots of questions about things related to energy efficiency and energy use, and um, uh, how how extreme weather events have have already impact, impacted the town. So there's a, this self-assessment. Then, then there needs to be a community-wide gathering to talk about the potential kinds of funding that are available and the problems that individuals in the community are seeing. So, at that point, you might have people come to this workshop. So, we've been we run workshops that where usually the town invites people and and provides food, and then we talk about at the workshop where we invite people. We say, you know, when it rains, does anyone here have places where the road washes out. In a town that doesn't even have public works, it takes the people from the community to report where the road gets flooded in an extreme weather event. And we're having more extreme weather events. And so those are important things to think about because if if they continue, that's the place, especially if it's a state road, then the Department of Transportation knows about it. But if it's it's a community-owned road, then they are going to need to figure out how to improve that road. And uh, so back to the, the, the barriers, or excuse me, the, the steps for becoming a partner is the community self-assessment, and then the, a workshop where, you, where the people who are residents of the town are queried about their interests and their concerns, and then a, a resolution so that the governing body, whether it's a select board or a council, um, a board of supervisors, they vote to to support a resolution that they'll be members of the partnership. And all of that information goes into the, up, is uploaded. So a summary of what happened at the workshop and the, where the community members were surveyed and this form that's filled out, this community self-assessment and a copy of the agenda from the meeting where the resolution was passed and the, the text of the resolution, all of that gets uploaded to uh, to the Community Resilience Partnership. And that's how communities become a partner. And so you can see that just as you, Steve, are encouraging people to work on their ho- own homes and their own buildings, either for their business or their community, uh, that, that it's individual action that will move us forward. And it's also, in this case, the GOPIF is saying it's people working in community and being con- connected with 
the problems that their community are facing now and and this idea of strategizing for the future that that's done as a community so uh the, uh, the 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 once this process is, that you just described happens, then a, a formal grant proposal needs to be written. Is that correct? Yes. Which could be beyond the scope of an experience of some small towns. Can you help write the, the grant? Right. Proposal? That's part. That's my role. So I'm called a, a a community resilience specialist. And when the when towns come to me that are in my region, I work with them. As you know, you two former academics, we spent a lot of time writing proposals mm -hmm. when we were working for the university. And so I'm quite comfortable writing proposals and I'm looking forward to helping communities do that. They also have another title of a job within this community resilience partnership, which is called a service provider. And service providers, uh, the service provider grants are they're due in February, also every six months. And a service provider, uh, Economic development associations like Eastern Maine Development Corporation can be service providers, and we are, but also individual consultants. So you might, if you look, go to the GoPIF website for Community Resilience Partnership, you'll see a list of service providers for each region, and they can be a consulting firm that's that's doing this work. And what is the work? They go to towns and say, I will help you do all of these things. I will help. I will fill out the self-assessment with your help, but I'll make sure it gets filled out. I will plan the community meeting and the survey. I will co collect all the information from that survey and put it into the format so it can be uploaded to the website. I will help I will help you pass that resolution. So, uh, so and that gets supported by GoPIF. So GoPIF will pay between 10 and either 10,000 or $12,500 per community to the service provider so that the service provider can basically staff the community to do this work. And also the service provider will help the community write the grant. Does that, and, does that money come out of the 4.75 million or is that yes. supplemental money? Yes. No, it comes out of the 4.75 million. Okay. So the service providers um, can work with two to five towns. So uh, for example, right here in the Bangor area where I live, Bay area, uh, community transportation backs, it's called Bay Area Transportation. They became a service provider to work with two towns right here in the Bangor area uh, to help them sign on to the Community Resilience Partnership. And and we, we assume they'll also be helping them by the time the March um, Community Action Grant time comes around to write a community action grant that has to do with either planning for or funding local community transportation in the Bangor area because Bax manages the bus system that moves our people around the greater Bangor area. So there's an example of an organization that already existed. It already had a mission and it said, we will help these two towns sign on. And why is it in the benefit of them to sign on a few towns? It's because the community action grants, if you go in on the grants with other communities, you can get up to $125,000. Hmm. So Dover Foxcroft went by itself. They got $50,000 to look at this, warming cooling planning and a warming and cooling shelter or extreme excuse me extreme temperature planning and the the creation of a warming cooling shelter fifty thousand dollars i have other towns that share sewer systems so once one community has a sewer system and that extends to the community next door but but they're going to be 
signing on to the Community Resilience Partnership and then applying for a $125,000 grant to assist them with upgrading their sewer system. Because when we have extreme temperature, extreme weather events, and you already have an old sewer system that's not doing so great right now, that those um, extreme weather events are only going to tax it more. So there's an example of why, not only why to become a partner, but why to partner with other communities. Well, this uh, this is really exciting stuff, and I have to say I'm uh, a, a little surprised that this is that I had not heard of it until I ran into you. Uh, but let me just uh, bring everybody up to speed here. You're listening to Power for the People here on WERU FM 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor. And my guest today is Lori Osher, who is, among other things, the uh, Community uh, Resilience Specialist for Eastern Maine Development Corporation. And uh, we've got a, a reasonably good snippet of uh, of what the program is all about, but I have a number of, of questions. Um, so you, one thing relative to our listening audience, you mentioned that, that you are uh, working in District 4, Region 4, which is which is Aroostook, Penobscot, and Piscataquis County. Um, the listening area for WERU, while it can be anywhere, uh, the broadcast area includes Washington and Hancock counties, and probably some of the coastal counties as well. Tell me more about the other regions, if you happen to know that off the top of your head. Uh, I will tell you about the other regions. Um, let's see. You're looking at a map on I'm your wall. I'm looking at the website. Right. <laughs> so uh, there's three other regions. I, I know that there's 16 counties in Maine, and I have three of them. And mine are the most um, rural and most northern. Uh, there are Let's see. Um, I, I'm trying to remember the numbers, which number is which thing. But wherever you are, there is a um, there is a partner that you can work with. What I can say when I told you that the 127 towns have signed on, they're mostly not in my region. So my region has a smaller number of towns in it and a smaller number that have signed on. And that's my work. I've been going last week. I went to four different um, select board meetings. I'm going to the select boards and individual towns in my region to say, I will help you. You don't have to pay for my time. This is going to be a good thing for you, but people have very little, you know, they don't have a lot of bandwidth to focus on new things. And so then you, you haven't heard about it because it's very hard to roll out new programs. Uh, efficiency Maine is doing great, but they've been there around since 2010. Mm, and so right. this is, this is, a um, and, and this is, yeah. So, so what I can say is that, uh, there, I can't find it on this website of what the other communities are. Let's see. Do you, do you know the other organizations that are, uh, that are leading it? Like Eastern Maine Development Corporation is leading it? Let's see. So here there's, uh, the names of the other people and their their organizations. AV Cog, so Yvette, Yvette Munir is an is an AV Cog, and uh, then there's Sunrise County Economic Development Corporation. So that's the that's uh, the Washington, down east. That's, yeah, that's Washington County. Washington County. What's the name? Uh, then there's let's see. I think Greater Portland Council of Governments is some is one of the people. Southern Maine. SM, SMPDC, Southern Maine, I think it's, what name? it's Development Corporation. 
GPCOG, LCRPC. I should have these better. Let's see. So Gay McPhail is um, York, Cumberland, Sagahawk, Lincoln, and Knox counties. That's region one. Okay. Well, Sunrise Development probably covers Washington and Hancock relative to yes, Washington to our, Hancock to our listening area. So we're off to a good start, and, and no doubt uh, you can also go to the government, the governor's office of whatever that is, Policy uh, Innovation of the Future. Thank you, and you can find out uh, what they are there as well. If you are a, uh, a, a an elected official within a town, or if you're a citizen within a town, get in touch with your elected elected officials so that they can be part of, part of this. So you mentioned that uh, this is for uh, communities that don't have uh, staff specifically to look at these sorts of things. So I would presume that cities uh, probably are typically not eligible. It's mostly just- so any any community, any municipality in the state is eligible. And so I'll give you, I, I know that your, that your radio listeners are on the coast and some of them are my former clients from uh, Ocean Environment Systems. But in the area that I cover, uh, in the first round of proposals, which was six months ago, excuse me, six in the spring, the first round, uh, that the the towns that won the $50,000 grants were bigger towns. So mm -hmm. Orno, Bangor, uh, Limestone, and Dover-Foxcroft in my region. There were four communities. And those communities already had groups of volunteers, community members who either had a a green team or a environmental um, environmental committee for their uh, their town and or they had staff people that worked for their municipality that were thinking about because their their community members and their electeds pushed to have climate resilience something that they were working on so as soon as this money was available they could apply mm. i gave you the example of dover foxcroft uh in limestone it was uh people associated with the main school of science and math that were already putting in a solar array. And so they they applied for funding that added to the money they had to put in their solar array mm -hmm. there. And and uh, so in, in Bangor, one of the things that they got funding for is an EV charging station. And so there's uh, there's Efficiency Maine is already encouraging EV charging. And uh, and this is another again, this adds on to that, that that a municipality would have EV charging stations, either to welcome visitors that are concerned about coming to your town to vacation because they don't know if there's charging stations or uh, EV charging stations because the municipality itself is buying electric vehicles and they need to charge them. And so that that's an interesting example. So I've always been a proponent and wonder why more restaurants don't have EV charging because that's where you're going to dilly dally for a while. Uh, can some can uh, some money like this be uh, wind up with a in the private sector or is it only on town property? Uh, I would say that. Uh, let's see. Energy efficient vehicles, public electric vehicle charging stations are on the list. Uh, my guess is that. Rather than having it, the money will not go directly to a business. The money will go to the municipality, right. and so if the I would say that the it's in the business's best interest to get their neighbors to also say to the municipality on this block of this street we'd like you to put in an EV charging station, yeah. and that will help our businesses. And we there's 
there's no denying that economic development is one of the things that makes communities, especially rural communities in Maine, more resilient to climate change, right? right? Because economic development brings in money. And when you have money, you can address problems. Right. And we see that just with the people's response to COVID, that people who had money and could work remotely some of them moved to Maine. Some of them didn't have any connection to Maine before, except for seeing how well Maine was doing. One is when everyone tells you to be five, six feet apart in Maine, we said, why so close? <laughs> so so people from around the country moved to Maine. The, the statistics from the, um, the U-Haul and the various moving companies of how many one-way trips went to Maine in 2021, I think it was, we were number three in the country. We're the third state in the country for one-way trips to Maine. Some and so those weren't people who already had a second home here. Those were people that moved here, and uh, and all of that. More people, more businesses, and better businesses are doing better will help us be more resilient. So, so I guess the the, the short answer is the money goes to the municipality. It does not go to a private business. And uh, so the municipality and me and whoever's helping write the grant has to make the case on why this is helping the municipality be more resilient. Right. That certainly makes sense. So I, I do want to emphasize here again, just in case somebody is just joining us, that this this uh, community resilience program, of which Lori is uh, the uh, the representative for Aroostook, Penobscot, and Piscataquis County, can combine um, rebates from uh, Efficiency Maine Trust with this program to result in zero cost in many cases or some cases to the community. And back to your heat pump example, I mean, there's a couple of aspects to that. I mean, number one, if a if a town puts a, a heat pump into their um, into their uh, municipal center, uh, they're going to be saving money on day two uh, on oil. And uh, one thing that, that uh, a lot of people kind of miss the uh, the connection here. Uh, the recommendation for Efficiency Maine, and I would certainly echo it, is if you've got an oil boiler, don't take it out. Even if it's old and inefficient, get a heat pump, set the heat pump temperature slightly higher than the thermostat for the oil boiler. So in the unlikely case that the oil boiler does need to come on, you you basically rarely use the, the oil boiler and you do most of your heating uh, with a heat pump. The other thing there, because you've mentioned cooling and, and Dover Foxcroft getting funding for that. I mean, we're in the ironic situation where because of climate change, we're going to have to do more cooling, which, whoops, is going to make climate change worse uh, in many ways. Uh, a heat pump all is basically a refrigerator can, that can work in either direction. And so uh, I would hope that not too many places are going to put in air conditioners. I hope they're going to put in heat pumps, which can heat in the wintertime and cool when necessary in the summertime. Or better yet, the way I use mine at my house is I run them in dry mode rather than cool mode, which is uh, even more efficient uh, than cooling. So heat pumps really are uh, a fantastic opportunity. So thanks for for using that as the first example. Uh, and I do uh, I do hope that every town out there signs on to get a heat pump. It just makes so much sense. Right. So the the there's heat pumps are one of the one of the ways that you can get funding, and that's heat pumps for new buildings, heat pumps for ex existing government buildings. Uh, heat pumps for businesses, excuse me, heat pumps for existing businesses. Again, uh, the municipality has to write it in a way that shows why this is of a benefit to the municipality. Uh, I know that I have another town that's, that was already planning to build a public works building, but they had not um, identified a specific location for a warming cooling shelter. 
And so they'll be able, they're going to be applying for funding so that they can have a little bit more money. Or the other option would be to, to put in triple pane windows, which are much more energy efficient, keep the heat in and the or heat the heat in the winter and keep the the heat out in the summer to have a triple pane window but they cost more at the beginning of building building a building have, have so, you run into any town that's uh, proposing to build a new school and the reason i ask that uh for the last 10 years it's driven me crazy that people are building a school building schools that require uh, require energy. I mean, a, a brand new school today the technology has been there for a long time. I did a project uh literally 11 years ago, uh, net zero energy project, not on a school, but on a town building. Uh, we should be building all of our schools to be net zero energy. Have you have you run into any any of those yet? Any school proposals? No, no school proposals. I mean, the towns, most of the towns that I'm going directly to, to give work. So again, I told you about the service provider where I could go to the town and say, let's write a grant that's due in February that says that I will help you sign on to the Community Resilience Partnership. And then EMDC or EMDC in the town would split the money that came per town. That's ten, say ten thousand. Or if the town meets some criteria, because they're very small or isolated, that it would be twelve thousand five hundred. Um, not isolated, small, uh, and also if it has um, a high social vulnerability index. Mm. Okay, meaning that lots of vulnerable people there. Which is your territory by definition, I think. Yes, my territory by definition. So I've skipped that step and I just go right to let me just help you get signed on because this is a two-year program and we're moving into, you know, coming towards the end of the first year. So it launched in April. And uh, and so we would, you know, the goal is that we would uh, help get as many towns signed up as possible. So that's what I'm working on now. But the things that they could be um, asking money for is uh, energy efficient vehicles for their town, uh, upgrading to LED lighting, uh, hiring a consultant to help them track and target their energy use and emissions. So you track how much they're using and target ways to reduce it. coming up with ways to reduce driving. So things that have to do with transportation that would reduce the amount of trips in a, in a vehicle. Like, like uh, this zoom, like this zoom yes. is doing. Yes. Improving <laughs> broadband in the community and improving so they can do more telework. And here at EMDC, we also have a, a person whose whole focus is broadband. Mm. And so that the, the beauty of EMDC and the other economic development organizations, uh, they, they all have, some other portfolio besides the climate resilience project. In the case of EMTC, we have the most portfolios because we have uh, a specialist that deals with broadband and we have a, uh, a a comprehensive planning group that so we can go in and work with people with towns that hire us to do comprehensive planning. We also do we we do kind of climate resilience planning as part of the comprehensive plan because well, we have you, a said this, you said that this four point seven million dollars was a two year uh, program. Is that correct? Yes. And so uh, so that's that's basically a little over a million dollars per uh, the four regions. And so whenever that money runs out, uh, which could be actually before two years, I suppose, uh, what happens then? And I well, the, uh, I am I, I hate to be partisan, but I am partisan because Janet Mills won. And because the Democrats held the House and the Senate at the state level here in Maine, this will continue because this was. Um, this is a basically a signature part of Janet Mills' uh, 
governorship. She came in and said she was going to talk about climate change and she was going to address it and she was going to help Maine address climate change. She went to the UN, one of the, the only governor in the US that went directly to the UN and said, you know, we Maine as a state will be addressing climate change even if the president the previous president pulled us out of the international discussions on climate change. And so she um she and the legislature created the Climate Council. The Climate Council worked for a year and a half, having meetings with specialists from all over the state and legislators and community activists and scientists and uh, to address what, what we need to do. So these 72 things on the list, they came from the working groups of the Climate Council. And then it came to the legislature where we where this was proposed that there would be funding that would go for this Community Resilience Partnership. And so we now will we'll have to vote on it again to put it in the budget again. And we have all the people present who would, who would be interested in putting it in the budget again. So, so, we, I, so this first year, the money's not passed through federal money. It actually is state money. It's, this is all state money. Okay. And this so you, you were on a committee of, of the Maine Won't Wait Climate Action Plan. Yes. Um, so this was, uh, this was one of the, uh, the recommendations for action implementation out of that, out of the Maine Won't Wait Climate Action Plan? Yes. Okay. So I was, you know, as a soil scientist, uh, even though I, I spent uh, over a decade doing energy efficiency, building energy efficiency, prior to that, I had decades of experience as a land manager. I worked for the federal government before I got my PhD. So I was a soil scientist for the federal government in in wildland management. So when I was appointed to the Climate Council, I asked to be on the, on the, on the land's Working, working lands group, uh, because my my interest as a soil scientist was always how do we manage land to store carbon below ground in soils? Because that's a very good it's it's a it's a nature service, right? That that soils that land, that ecosystems already store carbon. They store it in above ground biomass and they store it below ground. So I'm on the working lands group because I'm very interested in how we can manage um, landscapes. And here we have a lot of forests. We have we have land that's in grass. We have lands that's in actively in agriculture. We have wetlands, and all of those can be managed to store more carbon. So that's so I'm in the working lands group. So the the community resilience partnership doesn't actually talk about working land. So it wasn't every committee of the of the uh, climate council that came up with these, but there were committees that talked specifically about how municipalities could be more resilient. And that's that's what this comes out of. That's what the community. I'm glad you brought that up because I would like to uh, to dwell on that just for a second here, or like explore it with you for a minute. But uh, again, just a reminder to everybody: you're listening for to Power for the People here on WERUF FM 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor. And my guest today is Lori Osher. Uh, and so far, we've been exploring her role as the community resilience specialist with the Eastern Maine Development Corporation. That's one of four uh, uh, such organizations in the state of Maine in the listening area for WERU. It's uh, it's Sunrise Development. What's the full name for that, that company, that organization? Uh, Sunrise Economic Development Corporation. Right, and so again, uh, I urge any municipal official out there to get involved with this program because it sounds like it's free, smart money. Uh, and if you are a citizen, I urge you to get in touch with an elected official and uh, and make sure that they are aware of this. You mentioned, uh, again, as a soil scientist, uh, you mentioned the underground um, soil uh, 
sequestration of carbon. It's something that I teach uh, in a couple of my courses, including my science, uh, my climate science course. Uh, and in fact, you can find data out there that the amount of CO2 that's in the atmosphere is actually less than the amount of carbon that has already been lost by soils through bad agricultural practices. Uh, and that's uh, that's a bit of an eye opener. Do you have any suggestions as a soil scientist for what homeowners can do to do a better job of carbon sequestration on their own property? Could be could be a logger or it could be somebody that just has a lawn. Uh, but oh, that's a great question. Well, you know, with lawns, people un unfortunately had this idea that once you cut the grass, that you should then take the the cuttings off the lawn. Yeah. So leaving cuttings on the lawn is a great way to just keep your carbon in your own mini ecosystem where you're living. Uh, certainly, uh, I, I don't send my leaves off site. All of my leaves go into a composter. So I have a three yard composter and the, and it's, so it's basically three boxes and that way I can turn turn the compost when I use the, the stuff that's the most composted and put it back out of my yard, then I can take the next box that's a little less composted and turn it over into the empty box. And uh, so I basically am, I'm always uh, mulching. I'm, I'm always composting the leaves that come from the, come from trees that, and the, the leaves that land on my yard, they go into my composter and all of my kitchen scraps go into my composter that, that I don't give to my chickens. And uh, so, so that's what I suggest is that you keep your organic matter on site because you know that any bit of organic matter, for example, your kitchen waste, if it goes in the trash, then it goes into a landfill. And then in most cases, the landfills are anaerobic. And so it decomposes to become methane. And methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas. But even if it were aerobic and it decomposed to become CO2, rather than having it decomposed to become CO2, you could have it composted so that it would go into a form of organic matter that becomes both a moisture holder, like a sponge, and also a, a resource for nutrients. So it holds, it holds nutrients. So yeah. I, I recommend, uh, some people don't like to mess with soil. I love it. Hmm. And I, I love messing with compost. So I understand that some people feel like this is challenging. And when you hire someone to cut your grass, uh, they maybe have their system set up so that they take the clippings off site. So it's a matter of who you choose if you're hiring someone else to manage your site, whether they keep the clippings on site. And when you, when you, if you rake leaves yourselves rather than raking them into a pile to be picked up by uh, your municipality's leaf collection system or putting them into bags and carry them some somewhere else, I recommend keeping them on site. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, great, uh, great advice. Uh, I'll just comment that on uh, my three or four properties that I've owned in my time, all of which were half an acre or less, I literally have planted hundreds of trees as I have been working on taking my the grass out so that personally, I don't like to mow the lawn. Who wants to sign themselves up for a task that never ends? Uh, and, uh, you know, lawns all by themselves don't sequester carbon. You're going you're gonna to sequester carbon better uh, with woody tissue and uh, and that type of plant with deeper roots is also going to um, help sequester the carbon uh, underground. So uh, great examples and again, things that I talk about in my classes. So we're down to uh, to about nine minutes here. Uh, and I think we've done a reasonably job, good job of, of covering the community resilience program. Um, let's uh, let's just pivot to your experience 
with individual homeowners through the OSHA environmental systems business that you've had. And so your, your website says that you want to make your home or business comfortable, save money, and help save the planet. Uh, I think the comfortable part of it is something that a lot of people miss that uh, when I the, I just alluded briefly to the net zero energy project that I did many years ago, uh, the first reaction that I got from people was it's so much more comfortable here. We don't have to put sweaters on all the time. Uh, so in addition to saving money, uh, it just works. It works in so many different ways. Um, your website also says that on average, you've saved your clients 30 percent on their electric bill. And in my experience, so many people think they're going to spend thousands of dollars and save five or ten percent. Uh, and if you do it right, you know, probably engaging with a consultant, that's just not the way it works. And I'll just comment that that I'm saving about eighty uh, percent on my energy bill compared to what the previous owner uh, did. But let's let's talk a little bit about uh, some of your some of the misconceptions that you got from homeowners when you went out to talk to them, and some of the uh, mistakes they may have made or success stories that you had. Just as again, as part of the goal to help people listening to Power for the People do the right thing. Uh, well, thank you very much for your interest. Uh, I did this as a hobby when I was at the university. Partly, I couldn't find a place to buy, so I was renting. I rented places and each place was draftier and then the next and used a, so much oil and I thought I'm I have a PhD in studying the carbon cycle but it, I think that soils are not it it's figuring out how to not waste so much oil because every place I went into when I moved to Maine was cold and drafty but the heating systems were on all the time so I started weatherizing the the, the rental properties I lived in and then I bought was able to buy a house and weatherize that and then I worked on my synagogue. And so as a hobby, while I was a professor, I was doing this. And what I can say is that a lot of people don't even notice the draft because it's so common in main buildings to be drafty. And uh, and the, the, the least cost thing to do to a house is to close up the holes. And unfortunately, uh, people have water pro problems in their homes, moisture problems. And there's been a history of understanding that they should close holes without the understanding that they should manage the moisture issue because if you close up the holes then you'll get a then you'll get a moisture issue that you can see so if your house is drafty and the basement is wet um, or you have um, a bathroom and teenagers that take very long showers and there's no exhaust vent the draftiness of the house will make that moisture get carried out with the drafts however if you close all the holes to make the house tighter, which holds in the heat, it also holds in the moisture. So there was a, um, in the first generation of people making homes more energy efficient by closing holes, there was a problem with moisture accumulation. And so people unfortunately equated um, making houses more energy efficient with uh, with a, causing a moisture problem, especially older houses, because the people who started doing this first were people who were do-it-yourselfers who were fixing older homes. So that's a that's a misnomer. I would say that's a mistake that people think that closing up the drafts will make the house wet. The, if the house is either wet or it's not. So if you close up the house, the drafts and the house is wet, you'll have a problem. So whenever I work with any homeowners, I talk about making sure that the house is not wet. I'll have people who what I look to me like they had a stream in their basement mm. and they didn't consider it a wet house because it was flooded. It just had water moving through. And, uh, you know, a little and I and so I really focus on making the house more um, addressing the moisture issues. So 
So that's, uh, I would, and then once you address the moisture issues, when you close up a house to make it less drafty, then you will not have a moisture problem where you won't have any mold growth because the moisture has been handled. And so uh, did you have uh, clients that installed energy recovery ventilators, for example? Uh, so the, uh, I guess I'll, I'll start with I, when I say 30%, my specialty, the houses I, I rented and the houses, the house I bought, they were all over a hundred years old. So my specialty was working with older homes and, uh, and in most of the older homes I worked in, I could cut people's oil bill in half. Hmm. Uh, but when I worked on young, on homes that were newer, it's a lot harder to make a difference on a newer house because they are built with dimension lumber. They don't have a big gap between uh, the inner and the outer wall that, that the houses that are of 100 years ago were called balloon frame, and they had a space between the inside wall and the outside wall. And now we have dimension lumber where there's the, the inside wall and the outside wall are on either side of a piece of, of, a piece of two by four or two by six, and there's not much space in there. So uh, anyway, so that what, what your question again, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. I'm just wondering if you if you had subcontractors that installed HRVs or ERVs. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. So so basically the older homes, uh, they're so drafty that even when we closed up the holes, the house would not be so drafty that you needed to put in an HRV. At most in an older home, I would tell people that if you have a bathroom at the top of the stairs on the second floor, that if you put in an, um, um, an energy star, uh, ventilation system, basically an energy star exhaust fan that has a timer in it that will go on regularly, that that can become a mechanical ventilation system for the whole house. And so you set the timer based on how much, um, how many minutes you would need it to go on to make sure the house has proper ventilation. However, when I worked with a newer house, houses of 20 years and younger, that it was very common for the house to be too tight and therefore not safe for uh, respiration because you need to have fresh air to breathe. And so you don't, and and of course, if you don't have fresh air to breathe, you also don't have movement of the moist air out of the house. And so I did uh, have subcontractors that put in heat recovery ventilation systems for some of my clients, but they were only the clients that had relatively new homes. Right. And homes I think were, your, say, your, less comment than 30 about, years your comment about older homes is certainly a good one. I live in a 1948 house uh, where I've uh, spray foamed the basement and done a lot of insulating in the attic, but the walls and windows are still. Uh, original and so uh, it's uh, in that kind of situation you typically don't uh, have an issue. I will say, of course, that uh, the part of the, I mean, this is a really good point that you brought up. And a home energy audit and a blower door test will give you very good information about where you might stand with that. And so that is one of the advantages for doing um, for doing a home energy audit and typically efficiency main where you can get like fifty percent of your insulation money uh, back in a rebate. Uh, they do require uh, a, a blower door test before and after. So we're down to just a couple of minutes. Any other uh, any other big picture uh, advice or recommendations or success stories for people on your uh, for individual homeowners? Uh, I think that that energy efficiency is a really great goal for a home, but the first is to make the home um, to reduce the draft. And getting a blower door test tells you how drafty it is. It's like having a blood pressure test tells you how you're doing and also enables the person who's doing the test to walk around and find out where the holes are. Uh, and so I would say that that's the, the, the first most important thing to do. It's relatively low cost to close up the holes. And the next would be insulating uh, attics and basements. And of course, switching to a heat pump. An efficiency main has great programs for heat pumps. And uh, as far as 
from the municipal letter level, anything that you've done for your home, you can go to your municipality and buildings are actually pretty similar, whether they're commercial or the residential. So if you as a citizen going to your municipality and saying, have you signed up for the community resilience partnership? And one of the things that we could do in our town is make the buildings more energy efficient because that cuts the energy cost. And as I said, my average was about 30% drop in people's energy cost uh, and energy use and cost. And, so, and, that's, and that's just so important for people being able to stay warm uh, in this era of high prices. So I do want to come back and say that uh, this, this program will cover more details about uh, the Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which is uh, has been widely uh, touted, number one, by economists as, as yes, doing, uh, doing some good things for inflation itself. But it's also the first, really the first only major uh, climate change and energy efficiency program that's been developed by uh, by the the U.S. and maybe even developed by most of the other major uh, company uh, uh, countries. So look for opportunities uh, there, especially for tax credits uh, and rebates that are coming along in 2023. So you've been listening to Power for the People here on Solar Powered Community Radio WERU. Uh, 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor. The guest has been Lori Osher. And again, she is the Community Resilience Specialist with Eastern Maine Development Corporation. So feel free to reach out to her if you are in Aroostook, Penobscot, or Piscataquis County. And uh, if uh, if you are also again in the listening area and you want to reach out to Sunrise Economic Development to find out their uh, person that uh, runs this program, please do. Thanks so much for your time, Lori. This has been uh, very eye-opening for me, and I just I, I can't believe that I had not heard of the program before. Uh, and so we probably will talk about it again here on the program anyway. Thanks very Thank much. Thank you. I, I appreciate you inviting me, and I'll talk to you again anytime. Sounds good. 